Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Welcome back to an article from 2003 by Marie-Andre Harvey, who is an MD on pelvic floor exercises during and after pregnancy, a systematic review of their role in preventing pelvic floor dysfunction. So this is a meta-analysis, so it's going to be a review of the literature surrounding anatomical rationale, techniques, and evidence-based effectiveness of peripartum pelvic floor exercises in the prevention of pelvic floor problems, including things like urinary and anal incontinence and prolapse. The author gathered data from Sinol, Medline, and Embase. Before we get into the data, the author starts out with some origin and history of pelvic floor rehab that I kind of thought was interesting. So during the 1920s and 1930s, Minnie Randall trained student physiotherapists to encourage women to contract their pelvic floor as a means to preventing urine loss and prolapse. These exercises are thought to have originated from Swedish gymnastics. In 1948, Dr. A.H. Kegel first reported the use of voluntary exercise of the pelvic floor musculature. Kegel's work was inspired by personal communication with Van Skokovic, who noted unusually firm perineum in South African tribal native women who they thought this was owed to pelvic floor strengthening that midwives performed several days after birth until several weeks out. So the first study on the effectiveness of the now called Kegel exercises reported a 75% cure rate in 117 women. It was noted that injured muscle would regain most of its function when there was a demand for its use. And Kegel was also the designer of his perineometer, which is a biofeedback apparatus to exercise the pelvic floor. If you haven't seen a perineometer, you should definitely Google it if you have the chance. Um, This article goes into urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, and prolapse. I think it's fair to say that we understand those concepts to the degree that they explain it in this article. I'd like to delve into their review of anatomy though, so let's start fascially. The endopelvic fascia participates in the supralevator support of pelvic organs. This fascia attaches the pelvic organs to the arcus tendinous fascia pelvis, the ATFP, via the round cardinal uterosacral ligaments, pubocervical fascia, which is between the vaginal and the bladder area, and the rectovaginal fascia. The ATFP is a condensation of the fascia covering the inner surface of the obturator internus and it extends from the posterior surface of the pubis to the ischial spine. The combined action of the endopelvic fascia and the levator muscles is similar to that of a hammock. The pelvic floor muscles then consist of two groups of muscles, the urogenital diaphragm and the pelvic diaphragm. The urogenital diaphragm is the most inferior supporting structure of the pelvic floor. It consists of that bulbocavernosus, transversialis, and ischiocavernosus muscles, and its function is to provide stabilization of the perineal body where those muscles insert, which in turn supports the anal sphincter and the lower vaginal region. 
The pelvic diaphragm includes the levator ani, obturator, and coccygeus muscles, of which the levator ani is functionally the most important and consists of the puborectalis, pubococcygeus, and the iliococcygeus. The puborectalis originates from the posterior aspect of the pubis and it inserts medially to the perineal body, the vagina, and the lower anal canal. The pubococcygeus originates from the pubis and inserts to the coccyx. The iliococcygeus originates from the arcus tendinus levator ani and inserts into the coccyx. The muscular fibers of the levator ani consist of slow and fast twitch fibers. The slow twitch fibers provide that basal tone and the fast twitch fibers allow voluntary control and reflex contraction in response to rapid increases in intra-abdominal pressure, so things like coughing and sneezing. So let's get into the role of the pelvic floor contraction in pelvic floor dynamics. A poor levator ani function may contribute to stress incontinence as a result of lack of posterior support to the bladder neck, as it's postulated that a strong pelvic floor provides a backboard against which the bladder neck gets compressed during increase in intra-abdominal pressure. Pelvic floor muscle exercises are devised mainly to strengthen that muscle group and thus promote urinary continence and pelvic organ support. Now, an effective pelvic floor contraction is able to produce an increase in maximum urethral closure pressure. So whether this reflex contraction of the levator ani or of the external striated urethral sphincter hasn't really been clarified. However, an increase of intraurethral pressure, so we're thinking that maximal urethral closure pressure has not been consistently shown three months after treatment with pelvic floor exercises for incontinence. One study, though, did conclude that pelvic floor exercises can improve a woman's ability to voluntarily contract the external anal sphincter, either by improving the strength of the sphincter or by increasing the patient's ability to perceive that weak distension of the rectum. The article then goes into describing Kegels and that when instructing Kegels, women should be advised to avoid performing during micturition. They also discuss differing types of biofeedbacks to use, differing equipment, as well as just using the individual's finger. What I thought was most interesting was Dr. Kegel's original exercise proposition for women. He encouraged 20 to 40 hours of progressive resistance training with the perineometer over the course of 20 to 60 days with 20 minutes of exercise three times a day. The progressive resistance was in relation to increasing the pressure on the perineometer from one millimeter to two millimeters, increasing pressure daily. Other recommended regimens the article mentioned include the following, such as contracting maximally for six to eight seconds, resting for a few seconds, and repeating that 10 to 12 times for each set, three sets for three to four times weekly. Another one was to contract near maximally for six to eight seconds with each contraction immediately followed by three to four fast contractions, followed by a six second rest, repeating that eight to 12 times twice daily. So then this goes on into biofeedback. And while we know biofeedback encompasses a lot of different options, this article speaks on it regarding a device inserted vaginally. If you don't use this type of equipment in your position, I'll just do a quick run through. Biofeedback measures the level of muscle activity generated by a voluntary pelvic floor contraction. So this can be detected via the actual pressure produced or the electrical activity created by the muscle contraction. This is then transmitted to a computerized or a mechanical device that produces a visual readout of the strength generated. This article also noted that EMG surface electrodes, similar to those used for recording of electrocardiograms, can be placed on the abdominal wall to record and discourage abdominal activity. 
The article then goes into weighted vaginal cones, and these are for strengthening and sensory feedback. The general point of these is to insert above that levator muscle shelf, use the lightest one and progress to the heaviest, and focus on endurance in holding it. The article discusses holding it 15 to 20 minutes daily and their role being to help regain continence. So on to the next point, electric stimulation. The authors note that this is a passive form of strengthening with the intent to stimulate bilateral pudendal nerves to contract the pelvic floor muscles and thereby increase urethral closure. Now we know this is most helpful for those who can't actively contract or have difficulty with doing so, as this type of electric stim is also used with other muscle groups for strengthening outside of the pelvic floor realm. A typical protocol for their institution of this study consists of a weekly session of seven and a half minutes of stimulation on each side of the pelvis at a frequency of 50 hertz. They focus on a high enough intensity to create a contraction without discomfort, and they recommend that the muscle is exercised for two seconds and then allowed to rest for four seconds. They also recommend that treatment lasts for 10 weeks. So that's the author's treatment options and protocols for pelvic floor exercises within the anti- and postpartum populations. Now they're going to discuss their findings when performing a review of literature. So remember that they searched Medline, Sinol, and Embase. Articles ranged in dates from 1966 to 2002. They also did a manual review of abstracts presented at larger scientific meetings, like the American Continent Society, the American Urogynecologic Association, and the International Urogynecologic Association. Those were a little more up-to-date from 1997 to 2002, and up-to-date meaning in reference to this article anyways. So let's talk about what results they found, and we're going to split this into antepartum and postpartum just for clarity. For antepartum, there were two randomized control trials and two non-randomized control trials and one abstract. For antepartum RCTs, it was 50-50 on improvement in pelvic floor muscle strength, but it did show an improvement in incontinence. For antepartum non-RCTs, it showed some improvement in urinary incontinence, and the non-RCTs, which focused on strength, had some varying findings. Some showed women who were instructed on daily pelvic floor exercises during pregnancy improved muscle strength. Another showed that there was a positive correlation between pelvic floor muscles measured by perineometry and stress urinary incontinence. Realize that I'm summering here for these just in an effort to be succinct on what I think is important to gauge from the articles without going too much into all of these methods and interventions of each individual study. They are definitely there for you to review if you're interested. I just find it's not necessary for the goal of a systematic review article review. Okay, so on to postpartum pelvic floor exercises. There are different studies that assess different things like urinary incontinence, strength, and anal incontinence, and then all of the differences in RCT versus non-RCT. So let me try to give you an equally succinct result. Some people use fecal incontinence and anal incontinence interchangeably. I was taught that fecal incontinence was stool or bowel control loss, while anal incontinence is the loss of control of gas. And this isn't really a hill I'm ready to die on. Um, Mayo and Cleveland clinics, as well as the American College of Gastroenterology, identify the loss of gas and stool as fecal incontinence. My thought, as long as we're helping people and my ICD-10 codes are approved, I don't really care. I think that knowing that these terms are interchangeable to some groups of people are important for you to be able to ask patients and providers the proper questions. So let's get into the meat and potatoes of the postpartum findings. I just wanted to touch base on that just in case anybody else was thinking it when they were reading this article. 
For those postpartum doing pelvic floor exercises with urinary incontinence, the RCTs found the treatment group with pelvic floor exercises had less incontinence than the controls. Now, this next category is focusing on pelvic floor muscle strength. So for those postpartum who performed pelvic floor exercises, the RCTs found greater pelvic floor muscle strength improvement, but the incontinence improvement was mixed depending on the actual studies. Now onto the non-RCT trials. Postpartum individuals performing pelvic floor exercises were found to have improvement of pelvic floor muscle strength when performing intensive exercise, but urinary incontinence improvement was mixed. Some did point to improvement in incontinence though, but that was just some of them. Moving on to the anal incontinence. An RCT on pelvic floor exercise and anal incontinence showed improvement in a study that had a longer period trial of training versus the shorter period trial of training. A non-RCT on pelvic floor exercise and anal incontinence failed to detect a difference in anal incontinence 10 months postpartum between the experimental group who was using biofeedback and e-stim and control groups who were not. Lastly, they looked into pelvic floor exercises and the prevention of pelvic organ prolapse, and they note that there were actually no studies found to review on this. This article then goes into a discussion on the studies and that there were inherent limitations with them. Outcome measures weren't always standardized, the applications of pelvic floor exercises were variable from study to study, and none of the studies had limited entry criteria to women who were continent at baseline. So here are some of the conclusions that the article drew that I think are very take-home point worthy. One, antepartum pelvic floor exercises when taught by trained personnel with biofeedback do not significantly decrease the incidence of postpartum urinary incontinence or improve pelvic floor muscle strength in the short term, short term being three months. Two, postpartum pelvic floor exercises when performed with biofeedback or with a vaginal device providing resistance or feedback decrease postpartum urinary incontinence in high-risk women. Three, postpartum pelvic floor exercises when performed with a vaginal device providing resistance or feedback results in increased pelvic floor muscle strength. Four, evidence shows that a reminder and motivational system without expert instruction is ineffective in preventing urinary incontinence postpartum. And five, postpartum pelvic floor exercises do not consistently reduce anal incontinence. A reminder for this though, is that the studies on this was pretty limited. I think this article points out how limited studies are and were on these topics in order to perform a meta-analysis especially regarding anal incontinence and prolapse, but it's also fair to say that urinary incontinence and postpartum are likely understudied as well in regards to RCTs. So that's actually going to do it for this one. I hope this helped. I realize that some pieces are very vague in an effort to provide an article summary versus an in-depth 50-minute article review. It looks like next up we're on to an article by Jeffries in 2006, which is going to be an abstract on uterine blood flow during supine rest and exercise after 28 weeks gestation, as well as that two-for-one special I always talk about um, with Laslett in 2005 on the diagnosis of SIJ pain, validity of individual provocation tests, and composites of tests. So thank you for listening. I hope to see you all listening again soon. Bye everyone. Bye.